Good morning. How you guys doing? Good. All right. I'm gonna check the time. Eleven o'clock. I'm gonna try to be honest this time around. Well, we're going through a series on the Sermon of the Mount. If you're here for the first time this morning, you didn't know that, so now you know. Um, For those of you who have been tracking with us, it's been uh, such a rich experience so far. We've gone through the Beatitudes. Um, We've talked about being salt and light. Last week, Lance took us through um, what Jesus says when he means that he has come to fulfill the law. And so that's actually a really important uh, few verses for the rest of Jesus' sermon. So I would just encourage you, if you've, if you've missed that one from last week, it's on the website, I believe, and it would be great to listen to just to kind of get you um, into the coming weeks and months as we delve into the rest of the sermon. So we're just going to dive right in. This morning we're talking about murder and anger. So appropriate for Mother's Day, possibly. Um, but that's, that's really the only Mother's Day thing I'm going to say, although I do have a joke later on, so wait for that. But otherwise, we're not talking about Mother's Day, but um, happy Mother's Day to all you mothers, and um, we'll go from there. So let's read our scripture together this morning. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. I have the same page numbers. Oh, you put the page number in. Thank you so much. 678 in your um, chair Bibles, if you want to look it up. Matthew 5, 21 to 26. You have heard, it sa- heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord. So before we dive in, let's pray together this morning. Father, we want to thank you for your presence with us. You're so good. We thank you, God, that you... Offer us freedom in every way, and we want to accept your freedom and walk in that freedom. God, we pray that you would teach us how this morning, pray that you would speak to us. We're all in different places, um, but we long for you, God. God, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Indonesia this morning who are um, grieving who are um, living out what it means, blessed are the persecuted. God, we ask for your presence to be real. We ask for peace to come. We ask for reconciliation in that nation, across the world, and in our hearts. 
Amen. Okay, so verse 21, we're just going to dive right in here. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So Jesus is giving a sermon on a hill near the Sea of Galilee, and so you can just kind of maybe picture it in your mind, and he's kind of walking around, and there's people sitting, and it's probably hot and sunny out. And he's just said some beautiful poetic things in the beginning with the, with the Beatitudes and using metaphors. And um, the people are, you know, probably thinking, these are good song lyrics. Like, this is just really beautiful what you're saying, Jesus. And then he moves into just straight up, this is how you live this out. This is how you are salt and light. And he becomes very, very practical. And the metaphors go away and the poetry goes away. And Jesus just says it how it is. And he, and he dives right into the, the Old Testament. And he says, you shall not murder. And I'm guessing the people there thought, yeah, I know. I'm, like, they're, they're Jewish. They know the Ten Commandments, and they've heard it before. And so all this poetry and all these metaphors, and they're like, oh, he's just going to tell us the, the law? Oh, I didn't expect that. Um, I thought maybe he had something more. And of course he does. So he starts there, and then he says, but I tell you. Again, um, the sermon last week talks about the authority that Jesus has, and so I encourage you to listen to that sermon again for that reason, because that this part will make a lot more sense. Um, but he says, I tell you, God says this, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus goes right from the action of murder to the state of our hearts, just in one sentence. Bam, there he is. He doesn't even talk about how bad murder is, and of course it is it is terrible. But he puts them in the same sentence. Murder and anger, and in fact, have the same punishment. And in the Old Testament, punishment for, for murder was, was death. And so it's a little bit shocking. Really? Like, uh, anger and murder? Really, Jesus? Like, they're kind of the same in your eyes? So Jesus is immediately not just concerned with our actions, but he's concerned with our motives and our heart. And we're going to see this actually through the rest of his sermon, so not just this morning, but as we move on to the entirety of the sermon. <clears throat> so it's clear that uh, our intent is a significant part of wrongdoing. So it's not just the action, but it's the intent. And this is where Jesus wants to spend the rest of this part of, of the passage. It's not just the outside of the cup, as he would say to the Pharisees, but it's the inside of the cup that he's concerned with. He wants the inside clean. The inside um, becomes the outside. So let's talk a little bit about what anger is so we're all on the same page. So um, Dallas Willard has a great book called The Divine Conspiracy, and he just does an exceptional job of talking about anger, what it is, how we deal with it. So again, another recommendation. Good book. Um, On this slide, I believe, you'll see the quote. It's a bit long here, but I think it's helpful. In the simplest form, anger is, spontaneous, is a spontaneous response that has a vital function in life. As such, it is not wrong. It is a feeling that seizes us in our body and immediately impels us toward interfering with and possibly even harming those who have thwarted our will and interfered with our life. Indeed, anger is in its own right, quite apart from acting it out or, and further consequences, an injury to others. When I discover your anger at me, I am already wounded. Your anger alone will very likely be enough to stop me or make me change my course, and it will also raise the stress level of everyone around us. 
and may also evoke my anger in return. Usually it does, precisely because your anger places a restraint on me. It crosses my will. Thus, anger feeds on anger. The primary function of anger in life is to alert me to an obstruction of my will and immediately raise alarm and resistance before I even have time to think about it. Anyone relate to any of this this morning? Anyone ever get angry? Yeah? Okay. Just, let's go. Yeah, we're good? Uh, Anger. We're all angry people. I I know I am. I mean, um, I told myself I was not going to use the driving example, so I'm not. But we're all angry people. We We can all know what anger is like in every facet of life. And there are so many things to be angry about. There is so much injustice in the world. We're not going to make a list today, but we all can just think of a whole bunch of things off the top of our head of what is unjust with the world and in our streets and in our own lives. Anger is a natural response to injustice. And the scripture talks about anger in other places as well. Um, look at Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And again in James 1.19, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We know that Jesus got angry. He turned the tables over in the temple because they were using it for their own means. We see examples of Yahweh becoming angry and acting in anger in the Old Testament. So Jesus is not saying that anger in and of itself is wrong. It's what we do with our anger that matters. So some quick Greek for us, just to make sure we're understanding the word anger correctly. There's two main words in the, Old, in the New Testament that are used for anger. The first one is, I'm not going to say this right, but I don't think anyone here knows ancient Greek except for Lance and Scott. So, so do you guys know ancient Greek? A little bit. So thomas, thomos, thomos. Okay. Kathy, you know it? Doesn't matter. It's up on the, that's how you spell it, if you ever want to spell it. Easily ignited, quickly extinguished anger, like a flame from dried straw, an outburst of anger. So that's when something happens and we immediately just lash out, and then it, it's gone and we go on with life. That's one kind of anger. The second one, orgizo. This one I know is pronounced correctly because I pressed the little sound thing on the computer and then orgizo. So this one's right. The anger that becomes embittered, long-living anger, the anger that is nursed so that the wrath is kept warm. And that's actually my second Mother's Day joke there, the anger that is nursed. Okay. Um, That's all the, that's all. Okay, so, orgizo. This is the anger that Jesus is talking about. Carrying and nursing anger, the kind of anger we, is that's portable, that we just, we choose to carry around with us, holding a grudge. So Jesus in this passage is talking about the conscious choice that we make to hold on to anger and thereby to let it grow in us and to let it actually bring destruction and death to ourselves and to others. This is the anger that grows murder in our hearts. Another word for this is resentment. Resentment is continued anger. And this is the habit, and I say habit because 
we just do it all the time. And we don't even really notice that we do it anymore. But this is what Jesus is confronting with judgment in this passage. So why do we choose to hold on to anger? Well, there's lots of reasons. But one of the root reasons is the very nature of anger, of resentment. And again, I'm going to refer to Dallas Willard here. Anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. Find a person who has embraced anger and you will find a person with a wounded ego. Yeah, that's kind of true. We can all think about, maybe right now we're holding anger in our hearts. It's, there's a degree of it that it's just self-righteousness, vanity, pride, and it's so ugly. And Jesus knows all too well that murder, premeditated killing, begins in the heart. It begins with this kind of hanging on to anger. It's a, it's a tiny seed that starts to grow, and we nurse it, and we feed it, and I think we often don't even know that we're doing it. It becomes so much just a part of the way that we live, and we hang on to our, our self-righteousness, our need to be right, even if we're not, until one day it rages inside of us and comes out in all sorts of ways, but we say, what? That's, that's not me. I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not an angry person. And yet here for days and weeks and months and years, we've been nursing this anger, this resentment. Verse 22 continues, Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to court. So Jesus moves into some concrete examples of how we hold on to anger. So Raka, in case anyone wants to know, means empty. And so it's like calling someone an empty head. We don't really use that insult this day. You empty head. Um, it's, but it's basically calling someone stupid, and there's other words that we could use to, to mean that. So it's questioning the, the mental competence of a person. Verse two, 22 continues, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is going right for the jugular here. Jesus is saying anyone who questions the moral competence of a person. So the intelligence of a person and the moral competence of a person. So whether this is some kind of progressive anger, it could be we start with the small, oh, that that idiot, and we move on to more severe kinds of insults, or whether they're just all equally vicious, we know all too well that, ang- that words spoken in anger to us are so damaging that they go deep into our hearts. And I think we carry them around sometimes for the rest of our lives when we are insulted in these ways. We know the damage of words spoken in anger. And I would say that these words actually steal life from us. Jesus is talking again about murder, about death, and anger, and how anger actually steals life from us and from others. And what about the words that we use? I think anger most often turns to cursing of another, some kind. And we put judgment on another person with our words. We stand back as someone with power, and we proclaim that their heart and their life will never be more than it is. And we place judgment on them. And then we wonder why Jesus is so harsh in saying that we will have the judgment of hellfire um, 
if we use these words. It's just, I find it almost ironic that we're so easily able to put judgment on somebody else, but, but we get all up in arms when Jesus is so um, damning of our anger. So let's use a different word than anger for a minute. I think this is probably a more maybe Canadian way of showing anger. Contempt. Contempt is anger mixed with a little disgust. And I think it's just a little bit more subtle. It's, it's not quite as outbursty or outbursty. You can use that. Um, it's not quite as um, maybe obvious. But contempt is a, just a flippant dismissal of somebody else. It's a little bit of disgust. It's the eye roll. It's someone that we've decided that they are beneath us. And so I wanted to share with you a quick story um, from the book Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Maybe some of you read it. He talks about a, um, a psychologist named John Gottman who did a study a number of years ago with over 3,000 couples. He brought them into his lab. And he asked them to talk about a recent conflict that they had in their marriage. So these are all married couples. And over the course of 15 minutes to an hour... Him and his team would observe this couple talking through this conflict, or maybe they'd, they'd talked about two or three, and they would, they would be taking notes. And what they were doing was that they had a coding system with 20 different emotions, and every emotion had a number assigned to it. So, for example, two was contempt, seven, anger, ten, defensiveness, eleven, whining, twelve, sadness, fourteen, neutral, and so on. So there's 20 of them, covered the whole spectrum of what they believed would be the emotions that would be um, displayed and felt um, during this conversation. So after the conversation, they got together, they gathered all the stats, and they were able to predict with 95% accuracy which couples would still be married 15 years later. 95% accuracy. If they watched a couple for 15 minutes only, that went down to 90%. So how did he do it? I'm going to read a, a small portion, which I photocopied, Uh, from his book. So, how does he do it? He has figured out that he doesn't need to pay attention to everything that happens. So he's watching these couples interact. So Malcolm Gladwell says, I was overwhelmed by the task of counting negativity because everywhere I looked, I saw negative emotions. Gottman is far more selective. He has found that he can find out much of what he needs to know just by focusing on what he calls the four horsemen. Defensiveness, stonewalling, criticism, and contempt. Even with the four horsemen, in fact, there is one emotion that he considers the most important of all, contempt. If Gottman observes one or both partners in a marriage showing contempt toward the other, he considers it the single most important sign that the marriage is in trouble. You would think that criticism would be the worst, Gottman says, because criticism is a global condemnation of a person's character. Yet contempt is qualitatively different from criticism. With criticism, I might say to my wife, you never listen, you are really selfish and insensitive, while she's going to respond defensively to that. That's not very good for our problem-solving and interaction. But if I speak from a superior plane, that's far more damaging, and contempt is any statement made from a higher level. A lot of the time, it's an insult. You are a beep, I won't say the word here. You're scum. It's trying to put that person on a lower plane than you. It's hierarchical. Gottman has found, in fact, that the presence of contempt in a marriage can even predict such things as how many colds a husband or wife gets. In other words, having someone you love express contempt towards you is so stressful that it begins to affect the functioning of your immune system. 
Contempt is closely related to disgust, and what disgust and contempt are about is completely rejecting and excluding someone from the community. The big gender difference with negative emotions is that women are more critical and men are more likely to stonewall. We find that women start talking about a problem and the men get irritated and turn away and the woman gets more critical and it becomes a circle. But there isn't any gender difference when it comes to contempt. Not at all. Contempt is special. If you can measure contempt, then all of a sudden you don't need to know every detail of the couple's relationship. Dang. Right? That's crazy. Contempt. So they watched these couples, and in 15 minutes, they pretty much predicted dead on if they would still be together in 15 years. Because contempt is just that anger that grows over time, and it's so hard to even recognize because it just becomes a part of how we operate. So I'm not married, so this isn't talking to me at all. Um, Just kidding. Um, But married couples, this might be for you. Maybe something that you want to think about. And people who have friends. I have friends. Wait a minute. Um, contempt. It's, it's for all of us. No, it is. Yeah. Okay. So contempt, dehumanizing, demeaning. And we keep doing it and doing it until all of a sudden our relationships are gone. And we don't know how it happened. It wasn't just this big thing that happened. It was just the over time, the degrading of our relationships, and we, we fall out of love. I don't know, I just fell out of love. Contempt. No wonder Jesus is so hard on anger. He's so concerned with the state of our hearts because he wants us to be free from anger and contempt because he knows the destruction that it, they do to us and to our relationships. Okay, so that's the dip down Anger, resentment, contempt. But Jesus, of course, has good news, and that's where we're going to go next. And you guys, this is good news, because he has given us a way out. He wants to bring freedom to us. Let's go on to verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So it is exactly at the birth of anger, which we all experience, which Jesus is saying, that's not wrong, But at the birth of anger in ourselves, this is where Jesus' command kicks in. What will you do with the anger that you have in that second? Prolong it, nurse it, let it grow, or master it? The reality is that we we will always get angry. It's impossible not to get angry. It's impossible not to say a harsh word. We're humans, and we just, that's what we do. Um, And I, I love that Jesus is not saying, I say to you, do not murder, and now I'm going to fulfill the law. And the fulfillment of the law is also don't get angry and don't be resentful and don't hold contempt. Bam, more laws. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, his remedy for anger is recognizing that we are going to get angry. And so what do we do in that anger? We seek reconciliation. And this is where Jesus goes. 
He gives us two illustrations. Now, this is not the only two. There are many illustrations that could be said about um, the situations that we come across in life where we have to deal with our anger. So this isn't all, all-encompassing, but he gives two um, very practical ways that we can reconcile with each other and, and, uh, and lay our anger down. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So how many times have we said to ourselves, well, if she has a problem with me, she can come talk to me. Right? You, maybe you men don't quite do the hip thing. I don't know. Maybe you do. Um, but our automatic response when we know someone is upset with us is like, well, yeah, and they can come talk to me. It's not my responsibility. Jesus is saying the opposite here, which is just so... Ugh, you know, to our natural impulses. He's saying, if you know that someone has something against you, you go to them. You go to them and you seek out reconciliation. And now elsewhere in scripture, it's, it's reversed. So basically, if we bring scripture all together, whatever the issue is, whoever the injured party is, whoever the person is who did the injury, doesn't matter. Something is wrong, and as followers of Jesus, it is your responsibility to go and make things right, or at least try to make things right. This is what Jesus is saying. You make the first, the first move. So what's with the altar? Bringing your gift to the altar. We don't, really, we don't really do that. Well, again, Jesus is talking to Jewish, primarily a Jewish audience, and for Jewish people, they would be bringing their animal to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins. They would give it to the priest, and the priest would, would kill the animal. And this is their gift that he's talking about. And so for us, in this day, in your most religious moment, in the thing that would seem the most important to God, here's something even more important. Leave your gift, leave your worship, And first go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. God is placing reconciliation on par or maybe even above our our other kinds of worship that just are with him and us. And in this way, Jesus brings together our social lives and our worship lives and says, it's all one. The way that you are relating to each other, that is worship. So whatever you are doing, even the best and the most holy thing, leave it and go and seek reconciliation with your brother or sister. That's freedom step one that he gives us. Step number two, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So in the previous example, Jesus says, just, he says, first, go and do this. And now he's saying, quickly, quickly do it. So there is urgency to our action when it comes to reconciliation. It's not, oh, I'll do it tomorrow. Because again, we know what that anger is doing to us every minute that we let it brew in us. There is urgency to our action when it comes to anger and reconciliation. 
So in this illustration, some kind of injustice has been done. He doesn't use the word brother or sister. He uses adversary. So you're on your way to court with maybe your enemy, maybe someone who's totally screwed you over. And he says, make things right. Try to make things right. Now, I don't know that he's talking legally because obviously they can't, and that's why they're going to court. But he's, but he's saying, how are you going to love your enemy in this situation? How are you going to reconcile not with the situation, but with the person. Oh, that's hard work. That's hard work, but that is what we are called to as followers of Jesus. I think sometimes we, I, want to see God's kingdom come in in just grand gestures and, you know, pray for revival and I want to go over overseas and do the big things and, and feed the hungry people and all the things that God's kingdom encompasses, for sure. But we want to kind of keep it over there with all the big things. And Jesus is saying, I don't actually need your grand gestures. I just want your heart. And from there, what flows, flows. I just want to heal your heart. I just want to bring reconciliation, not over there, but here. To the people that you, that you love, that your brothers and sisters here. And let me use that soil, the soil of your heart, to bring my kingdom. I think that's what we see all through this sermon is just, God, we want to be the city on the hill. We want to be light, the, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And this is what Jesus calls us to. And then he goes into these places, anger. This is how I'm the salt of the earth. This is how I'm a light on the hill. Is when I get angry, I have to reconcile. And not with, like, Donald Trump, but with my friend, with my spouse, with my neighbor, with my city, with the, with the people that are right here. Okay. So, a little bit of application. This was, as you probably can guess, a hard sermon to prepare for because I'm angry. I'm angry, too. And so I've had to spend some soul-searching time in the last couple of weeks especially um, looking at my own heart and my own relationships. And I think sometimes we think with Scripture that it, it seems almost impossible or it's like, that sounds nice, Jesus, but how do you actually live that out? So I want to share a little story with you guys about how this has become a reality in my own life. And it's a bit of an embarrassing story because I'm going to tell you some yucky things about me, but... Um, that's okay, because you guys already know that I'm yucky, so. Um, so this is the messy reality. So a couple years ago, uh, I met a friend's friend who was incredibly talented and beautiful and smart, just like an awesome person, and I instantly became incredibly jealous of her, just like that, and I decided in that moment I did not like her. I did not like her. I didn't even really know why I didn't like her. I just didn't like her. Like, you know how sometimes you're just like, no, I mean, whatever, but I just don't like her. And that was my conclusion, and that was how it's going to be. And so as the months went on, like, maybe her name would come up in conversation, or I'd see her, whatever, around town. Not that you ever see people around town, but except for Lance. I've heard that people see you around town, Lance. I don't know why. I've never had that experience, but... Um, and so she would come up in conversation, and I just noticed this, this thing growing, like, I, no, I don't just not like her, I really don't like her. And eventually I realized it was jealousy, but we don't always even know why we don't like someone, we're just like, you know, write them off. I let it grow 
let it grow for over a year. I would see her sometimes at concerts or just out and about, and I would avoid her because I did not like her. And then I would tell myself that it was she that was avoiding me, right? Well, like she could have come talk to me, and she didn't. So she like, oh, what a beep, right? And so you know, you just have, and you start telling yourself these stories.、Um, and I kept, I kept it inside, and it kept growing, and it grew into contempt. And I became so aware of it, and I started to pray, God, I know I'm not supposed to be jealous. I know I'm not supposed to be angry. Please take this away from me. Just you're, you could do anything, God. Just remove it from my heart. Make me pure. And God didn't do that, and it kept growing, and growing. And eventually, I found myself wanting to just say little things about her that might, you know, just ruin her reputation a little bit. Just those little, those little things that we can say to kind of change someone's opinion about someone. And I noticed that in me, and I thought, "Oh, this is so ugly. What am I going to do? Like, sh- she's not going away. I can't live like this." It's affecting my sleep. I was waking up thinking about it, and so I prayed a prayer that is very dangerous, because God always answers it, and it is this: God, give me the desire to desire to love her. And I tell you, I barely could say it out loud. That's how much I did not want to love this person. But I started praying that. And lo and behold, she started coming to Artisan. I started seeing her every week. I was like, "You've got to be kidding me! This is like the, this is like a holy place, right? I mean, we can't come with all this stuff inside." And yet, he, I was very aware that I did not like this person. I knew it was jealousy, and God wasn't taking my jealousy away. So, what am I going to do? And then, she started coming to Monday evening prayer. So again, I prayed, God, please give me the desire to desire to love her, and this is what God did. He put her in my life, and not only in my life, but in our the prayer group that I'm supposed to lead. And here I am, the leader, along with Bree, and I do not want to pray with this person. I don't even want to see her. And so. The second time she came to prayer, it was just Bree and I and this and this woman, and we started praying, and I was so convicted. I just knew I like I can't pray with this person. I can't lead this prayer meeting and have this jealousy, and anger in my heart. And so, I'm just I don't know what you guys what happens in your physical bodies when you are convicted by the Spirit, but for me, I get so like nervous and sweaty. And just like oh, I could just I just know like I have like I have to do something. And and God's quiet voice to me was confess, confess your sin. I was like no, no, that's like so embarrassing. She she thinks I'm this like this awesome spiritual leader. <laughs> like how am I? I'm that would devastate her. Like you know, you tell yourself all this stuff, and so, but the verse, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That was like, yeah, but that's like the verse where like you've done, like you've stolen, you've stolen something, and so you go and you're like, Rebecca, I have something to confess. I stole from the the corner store, 
suddenly I'm just like a child with this example. Um, and you know, and like that's the kind of confession that, okay, he's faithful to heal. This isn't the kind of confession that we actually go to the person who we've sinned against and confess our sins to them so that he will heal us. And yet I knew that it was. And so I actually stopped the prayer time. In the middle of it, I was like, you guys, I'm sorry to interrupt this holy moment as we're praying for the nations, but I need to say something. And I started to confess to her my jealousy, my contempt. I was crying. It was, felt so awkward. It felt so messy. I was like, you know, snot crying. Just a mess. And we cried together. And we prayed together, and she forgave me. And that moment set me on a different path with this person. And I think it was about eight months ago. And I got to tell you guys, I have so much love in my heart for her today. It's just like, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. That was not me 10 months ago, eight months ago. And I think that that's just going to grow. And I have so much, like, I'm for her. I'm for her now. I'm not against her. And I wanted to share that story with you because that is the power of God as followers of Jesus. It's not just do these things and hopefully it works out. Reconciliation is hard. It's sometimes a lifetime work. But as Lance often reminds us, it's not about proximity. It's about direction. It's about turning our feet and our faces toward each other. And this is the soil that the kingdom of God grows on giving up our self-righteousness, humbling ourselves before each other, and watching the power of God begin to move in miraculous ways in our lives, in our relationships. And it's hard, but it's beautiful. So a few uh, takeaways, hopefully, for you guys this morning. I put some questions on this slide. Oh, you even put the little transitional... Thank you. Thank you. Um... First question, do you have contempt? Oh, these are like super real questions, by the way. Um, ask yourself these questions. Do you have contempt and anger growing in your heart? Sometimes we don't even know it's there. Like it's so par- part of how we live. Our modus operandi, to use the Latin. Is that Latin? Yes, thank you. It's that or Italian, I wasn't sure. Um, so we just, we live this way. We live with anger and contempt. So ask the Holy Spirit this morning, please show me if I even have this in my heart, and if so, towards who? Maybe you know that you do. Second one, is the the Spirit prompting you to go and seek reconciliation with someone? This takes strength, humility, courage, wisdom. There's no guarantee of outcome. It might not be the outcome that I had with with this friend. Um... You can't control their response, right? So, but as much as you can do, can you go and seek reconciliation with someone this morning? Do you want to want to seek reconciliation with someone? Are you like me where I just didn't even really want to? I wanted to have the desire to do it, to love that person. Ask ask God. He'll, He'll give you the desire. That's his good work in us. And finally, are you in need of creative, righteous ways to use your anger to fight against injustice 
And I know that there's lots of people in this room this morning who are um, such fighters against injustice. And so I was just thinking about anger and how it can actually be used to propel us to do the kingdom work if our hearts are in the right place. It's hard because we don't often um, know how to hold on to our anger. But ask the Holy Spirit, who is a warrior. God is a warrior and God is after the liberation of all people. And his heart is for justice, even more than ours is. And so ask him for creativity this morning of how you can use that, that anger against what is going on in the world to actually um, bring the kingdom closer and to preserve you from holding it against a person, to preserve you from um, allowing anger and resentment to seep in and, and destroy you. We're going to move into the um, second half of our worship time this morning. And uh, I just want to encourage you guys, if you... Um, have someone on your mind this morning that you are angry with, that you are jealous of, that you are bitter against, you don't have to stay. You know, going with Jesus' illustration here, you can actually go before you bring your gift to the altar and go and seek reconciliation. Get on your cell phone outside. Go drive, drive and find that person. The urgency is do it now and do it quickly before anger brings death. Before it brings death. Maybe it's the person that's next to you. Maybe you had a conversation this morning before church that has just been going on and on and on for years and years, and it's growing and it's growing. Don't be that statistic that 15 years later, it just ends. You have a chance to seek reconciliation. And I I love how first we are reconciled with God. We turn our, our feet towards God. We walk in the direction of the cross. And then in doing so, we actually... No matter how far apart we are from each other, we can turn our feet towards each other and walk in each other's direction. And so I want to encourage you before we sing, before we take communion, if that's you, this is church, you guys. This is our worship. Reconciliation is our worship. That's what Jesus says. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are so for us and not against us, that you know us so well and you have provided a way out. You have provided a remedy for our anger. God, you're so good. Thank you for revealing truth to us that we don't have to live in our muck. We don't have to live in the way that we kill ourselves and we kill other people, but that you have come, Jesus, to set us free And we want your freedom this morning. Holy Spirit, we just invite you. We invite you in this place. We invite you to convict us, to stir us towards that freedom for our own sake and for the sake of the world and for the sake of your kingdom, God, and for your glory because you are so good. You are so good, God. Your love is so evident in this passage, in this sermon. Thank you for preaching it. God, I just pray for peace to come over us, God, as we battle with ourselves this morning, as we want to resist reconciliation for the sake of our pride, for the sake of our self-righteousness. God, would you break us down in Jesus' name? Break us down and, and then rise us up to be people that are free. Thank you that this is your work, God. In Jesus' name, amen.